0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Sanskrit Studies podcast. My guest today is Anand Venkatkrishna. Anand, if I sat next to you on a plane or a train or somewhere else where we um, were forced to spend some time together and I asked you, so what do you do? What would your answer be?
1: Uh, well, first of all, thanks, Antonia, for inviting me. Um, And I don't think we'd be forced to spend time together. (laughs) I'd be delighted to spend time with you. Um, My answer would be, I teach uh, Indian literature, philosophy, and religion. Um, And my second answer would be, I'm employed to teach that by the University of Chicago. Uh, So here I teach at the Divinity School, uh, and I conduct research in all varieties of Sanskrit systems of knowledge.
0: How did you get interested in that?
1: Well, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area in California. Um, I grew up in a rather large Hindu community um, and had learned from a young age um, to recite the Sanskrit language in many liturgical forms, both Vedic and other kinds of poetry. I was also uh, enrolled in private lessons uh, under a tutor who would teach at the community center. Uh, and her name was Dr. Sarasudi Mohan. Dr. Mohan was an incredible uh, teacher who, uh, who would teach classes to all ages, uh, but with the same rigor that you would find in a, for example, elementary Sanskrit course at a university. I knew the ins and outs of Sanskrit grammar before I knew anything about English grammar. And I was five years old. So um, under Dr. Mohan's guidance, I spent several years going through uh, the uh, rules. Uh, of Sanskrit grammar, and even up to some classics of literature, including the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. I spent several years with her um, until she left for India when I started high school. And I think that um, my relationship to the language at that point was uh, still a little bit um, flimsy. Uh, Not because of her instruction, but because I didn't pay that much attention. (laughs) Uh, I was a little bit of a a slacker. And so uh, fortunately, everything that she had taught me, sort of I was able to absorb through osmosis. And uh, I only came back to it in a formal way after I went to college. So there was a little bit of a gap. But those years studying with Dr. Mohan, provided the groundwork uh, for what I was able to do later.
0: And when you were a student of Sanskrit at such an old, uh, sorry, such a young age, um, was that something that that was cool or was that the sort of thing that, you know, parents expect you to do? Or was it maybe a mixture?
1: Well, the story goes that I wanted to do it myself, uh-huh. uh, but uh, I can't remember that, so I'll have to take my parents' word for it. Uh, but no, it was um, you know, it was a little bit of a, uh, a chore in the sense that it was that what I had one or two or three major extracurricular activities, and this was one of them. Um, and when uh, when you're a kid, um, you know, you just try to find the most fun in what you're doing, and Fortunately, Dr. Mohan made it extremely fun. And she had an infinite patience. Um, uh, She never thought that you couldn't do it just because you were this or that age, just because you had this or that ability. She made you feel that you could do anything. And so at the very least, that carried through Uh, with me and into the present, both as a continuing Sanskrit student and as a Sanskrit teacher. So I'm very grateful for her instruction, even though at the time I might have been a little bit bored.
0: (laughs) Um, You mentioned that you then took a little break and came back to Sanskrit after college. What did you do for your undergrad then?
1: Um, As an undergraduate, I was a classics major. Mm -hmm. That means the study of Greek and Latin language and literature. In my first year, I studied Latin. I had never had any experience with classical uh, languages of this sort, except for Sanskrit, of course. Um, But um, I did not go to a school uh, where these were available to you. So it was, in a sense, my first uh, experience. Um, I did then Greek in the following summer, where I took an intensive introductory course that crammed one and a half years of Greek into 10 weeks. That experience returned to me all of my latent Sanskrit knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so um, that prompted me to get back into it and study it more formally in my last two or three years uh, in college. Um, I didn't have many formal avenues to do that, in the place where I went to college. It was kind of studying uh, independently with one or two faculty members. Um, And so a lot of it was self-prompted. So you could say that I'm a little bit of an orientalist in reverse, in that (laughs) I studied Sanskrit first, and then I went to Greek and Latin, and then I blessedly defected. so that's how uh, my interest in it got rekindled through the study of Regan Latin.
0: It's so funny when we are in college, we um, often have this experience of being sort of a little, little isolated with that experience um, of, um, you know, interest in Sanskrit, studying Sanskrit. But then, so many people who turn to Sanskrit for their for their professional academic careers um, were not. Sanskritists, Indologists, South Asianists for the undergrad—it's really quite interesting.
1: Yes, I didn't know that there was such a thing as
0: yeah, exactly
1: South Asian studies, Indian studies. There just was not a significant presence uh, where I went to college at the time. So where it was it, is Isolating, ask. yeah.
0: Apologies. Where was where was that uh, you, you, uh, college for you?
1: Yeah, I was I was a, an undergraduate at Stanford University. Right, and uh, I think things have changed a little bit. As, as at least in the presence of South Asia at large on campus, things have certainly changed. Mm. Uh, but uh, Sanskrit, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, remains uh, a little bit on the margins. So it is true. I did uh, feel a little bit isolated. Uh, by the same token. Anyone who was studying the humanities at Stanford felt a little (laughs) bit isolated. Uh, And uh, having grown up in Silicon Valley, um, I knew all about that.
0: Right. Yes. So when you then through Greek, which is sort of, you know, West Sanskrit, far West Sanskrit, as I often think of it, um, uh, when through Greek, you then became interested in Actively engaging with Sanskrit again. Um, mm-hmm. What did you enjoy about it particularly? Is there any 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 class, any individual study, any text that you remember with particular fondness?
1: Yes. So, you know, first of all, when I was studying Greek and Latin, I remember thinking, "What? Only four cases? Only five cases? <laughs> what is this?" Um, and uh, when I started to get back into Sanskrit. Um, on the one hand, uh, the uh, I w- had a certain vocabulary uh, that was inherited from the community that I grew up in that was very interested in the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, Vedanta being a tradition of philosophical theology. Um, so there was a certain vocabulary that I was familiar with, not only liturgically, but also technically. By the same token, studying uh, the uh, Sanskrit um, as an undergraduate exposed me to the broader world of secular literature. That means books like Kalidasa's plays, um, Bhavaputi, Madha, the authors of classical Kavya or and. I had only a peripheral awareness of this tradition prior to this. And when I realized that my facility with the language uh, was sufficient that I could read uh, in those, what do we now consider classics, um, it opened up a whole new world that I was not aware of, um, or at least was only slightly aware of. And so, discovering the virtuosity, um, discovering the playfulness, um, discovering the, in some cases, wildness of the Sanskrit literary world at large, uh, was quite uh, attractive.
0: That sounds, that sounds wonderful, this sort of um, voyage of discovery that um, uh, education brings with it. Um, was there anything that you felt um, was not as good as it could have been? Was there anything that you either now going back, back if you could go back, would change? Or is there anything about the system that you fe- feel um, could have been different or better?
1: Well, so I have a few answers to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that my training in Sanskrit was a little bit haphazard. And sometimes I think this can be a good thing. And I think in my case, it was a good thing. That I had studied for many years on a slightly informal basis with Dr. Mohan, in the sense that she never gave me tests or exams. I was a kind of her pet student. And so I was able to absorb quite a bit and pair it with a more formal understanding of other classical languages. So I had that. I was able to piece it together that way. What that means, I think, for me is that I didn't feel trapped by the need to be a historical linguist, and it struck me entering the Sanskrit world that uh, many people um, uh, come into the Indological world with that Kind of philological intensity—the <laughs> yes. uh, intensity of uh, needing to be a textual critic or a historical linguist or what have you. Of course, there are many other roads in, and uh, and uh, we'll talk about some of them. But at the very least, I didn't feel hampered by uh, by that um, by that illustrious uh, tradition, uh, grammatical tradition. Um, But I was still captured by, at the time, what I thought were the classics. And um, not having many avenues of that, I grasped at what I could. One of those classes that I took was an advanced reading group um, with a professor in the Religious Studies Department on Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit. Now, being 20 years old with my hair on fire, I thought that This was just bad Sanskrit. (laughs) And it was so frustrating for the longest time. And it wasn't until I learned from this professor a couple of things. The value of slow, methodical reading, number one, and the existence of grammar and dictionary of this language, that there was structure to it, that there was um, a... Uh, uh a vocabulary to it that there was a lexicon um these are the slow systematic ways of learning uh even though it was in a language and in a text that was a little bit not only alien but sometimes uh disappointing to me that i learned uh, uh the a, a significant uh, method for uh, uh for approaching the language so a, uh, an experience that could have been uh, underwhelming actually turned into a great lesson. Uh, so those are a couple of um those are a couple of answers I have to the question of what could have been better. Um, I think both my haphazardness and encountering sometimes alien texts both ended up being really uh, educative and formative for me.
0: May I ask who the professor was that... uh, Oh, yes.
1: I studied with Paul Harrison, and Paul remains uh, uh, one of my favorite teachers for precisely that reason. Paul would come in and have the Sanskrit on one side, the Tibetan on the other side, the Chinese on the other side, and the English translation in front of him, and he would slowly and methodically go through all of them. And in three hours, we would get through maybe... One or two paragraphs. That was the value of slow reading. Mm-hmm. And we were reading a text, by the way, called the Pracha Sutra, possibly the least inspiring Buddhist Mahayana Sutra out there. <laughs> it's all about how those monks over there, they're all cheats. So you got to watch out for those guys. But uh, in spite of that, I learned a lot from Paul.
0: Good teachers are one of the best things in life, I find. Um, so, After your undergrad, where did you take your interests? Or where did did your interests take you?
1: Yes. So as I continued the study of Sanskrit, um, one of the avenues for pursuing broadly Indian studies and specifically the study of the Indian past was the religious studies department, where I met uh, Linda Hess, who uh, remains uh, one of my favorite teachers. Um through Linda, uh, as well as through um, uh, other people who um, were uh, scholars of modern South Asian history, I was exposed a little bit more to the broader world of what we now call South Asian studies. So um, I tried to fuse my interest in Sanskrit with my background in Uh, the vocabulary, the philosophical vocabulary of a religious tradition, and sent applications to different graduate programs, uh, either in the area studies uh, model uh, or uh, in religion, uh, to religion programs. I ended up being admitted to a religion program, uh, the religion department at Columbia University, and that's where my story continued. At the time, I didn't really understand or know what I wanted to do. I didn't really understand anything about graduate school. For that matter, I didn't know that there was a difference between the humanities and the social sciences. I didn't know how universities worked. I didn't know how departments worked. I didn't know that there were such things as fields. I just knew that there were classes and topics. So um, I reached out a little bit blindly. And when I now encounter Master students or other graduate students who are preparing their applications, I think, oh my gosh, you're so ahead of the curve
0: uh, <laughs> compared to
1: where I was, you know, grasping at straws. Um, but by hook or by crook, I was admitted to uh, one PhD program in religion and uh, continued from there.
0: So, what did you do your PhD on?
1: My PhD was a study of. Uh, let's call it a reception history of the Bhagavata Purana. The Bhagavata Purana, a famous Sanskrit scripture from around, let's say, the 10th century, had a significant life uh, in the subcontinent, influencing many different philosophical and religious communities. And I was interested in the later history of the Bhagavata, particularly from the, say, 14th to the 18th centuries. I was interested in how Um, how writing in uh, systems of Sanskrit scriptural interpretation that had traditionally been designed to understand the Vedas, I was interested in how the Bhagavata shaped and influenced writing in those disciplines. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by those disciplines? I'm specifically talking about mimamsa, and Vedanta, the being a, a system of interpretive principles to understand the structure and purpose of the Vedas, and Vedanta adapting some of those principles but to understand specifically the Upanishads, the latter portions of the Vedas. I was interested in how the Bhagavata influenced writing in both of those disciplines. And the Bhagavata, too, as closely connected to if not in a one-to-one way, with broader traditions of bhakti in the subcontinent, bhakti being religious devotion to a physically embodied god. So uh, I was interested in the relationship between mimamsa, vedanta, and broadly speaking, bhakti traditions, both as influenced by the Bhagavata Purana and uh, in more popular regional forms. So the title of my dissertation became Imamsa Vedanta and the Bhakti Movement.
0: And um, you've, you've outlined the questions that you, that you were looking at uh, very clearly. Um, what would be your main, main takeaway from the research that you then did?
1: Well, uh, five or six years later, I am now writing a book based on the thesis that I had written back then. And the questions that I'm asking right now are very quite different from the questions I was asking back then. Mm -hmm. Back then, I was uh, newly introduced to a field called intellectual history, the history of ideas, tracking how do ideas change over time and what is the historical context in which those ideas should be situated? What kinds of interventions do they make in a certain intellectual culture? Those are the kinds of questions that motivated me then. Now older and not yet wiser, (laughs) I realized that what I was really interested in was not ideas themselves, but the people who articulated those ideas. Really, I'm interested in scholarly life. I'm interested in the everyday life of scholars. Where do people um, sit to write? What goes into a person's thinking? Um, what prompt, what draws someone to a concept, or a work of art, or a text? Um, what do they eat? What do they smell? These are all questions that are the ones that motivate me now. When I think about the corpus of text that I studied and the time period that I studied, those are very difficult questions to answer. We don't know a great deal about the people who wrote these texts. but What we can discern is um, style. We can discern motivations, irritations, fears, hopes. We can trace all of these things in a language, Sanskrit, and in a genre, scholastic or commentarial writing, that's usually abstracted from those questions of everyday life. So right now, the book that I'm writing is interested in excavating what are those contours of everyday life in the Sanskrit scholastic text, everyday life being mediated specifically by bhakti, or religious devotion, and relationships that people had to popular religious movements. So the book that I'm writing now is called Love in the Time of Scholarship, which tries to look at um, how can we trace the everyday lives of scholars in the text that they write.
0: I love the title, and I love everything that you that you're saying about this project. And it's it's interesting that again there is, I think, a familiar trajectory. So often when we are younger, we we are hungry for for ideas, for for things, for um, getting to know more about you know the world or whatever we perceive the world to be and then later on are we uh, interested more in the um, the smaller in the um, in air quotes mundane things, such as um, the lives of of the people who had those ideas, and um, just the the everydayness of their lives. Because all of a sudden we feel that we are part of this. And maybe I'm maybe that's just me, but maybe you felt something similar. We are all part of this this scholarly enterprise that continues over the centuries across the you know across the continents, and to find out more about someone who does something similar to what you are doing now, but they did it at a completely different time in a completely different place. That's just a very, very human enterprise that we're engaged in.
1: That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Um, this is after all, a humanist discipline, as much as okay, the way I see it, as much as some, uh, some corners of it try to treat it as science. Um, or indeed as social science. I am not always totally interested in simply uh, the analysis of data (laughs) and uh, trying to provide uh, some kind of historical facticity. Um, That is a great deal of what I do. Uh, But I'm interested in asking more speculative questions, Uh, questions that. can give us a glimpse into uh, things like uh, everyday life. But that idea of continuity across time and across place I think was also uh, new and important to me because when I was writing my thesis, one of the motivating questions that animated the study of the time period that I was interested in, the 16th, 17th centuries, often called the early modern period Um, was how to compare this time period with contemporary uh, things going on in, for example, Europe or the Middle East or China. How do we understand what's going on in India or South Asia at large, uh, both in the Sanskrit and in the Persianate intellectual worlds, uh, alongside what's going on elsewhere in the world at the same time. And I wanted to kind of break free of this need for contemporaneity. I wanted to get into slightly more universal questions. After all, these are pundits, and we are pundits, and uh, you know, uh, the same things that some of the same things that ail them are the things that ail us, uh, and so, um, uh, and some of the uh, same uh, things that they might have uh, same. Uh, rules and hierarchies that they might have set in place resemble some of the rules and hierarchies that are continue to be set in place. So, how to ask questions about all of those things uh, together uh, uh, remained uh, r- remains um, a motivation of mine.
0: So given that um, among our audience, we've got quite a few people who are interested in going into uh, Sanskrit related research or generally research in the humanities. Um, how, how do you ask those questions? What, what methods do you have? At the
1: core, I remain an intellectual historian. I, when I read, uh, I am reading to, uh, well, first of all, I read. That is my primary method. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, the kinds of questions that I ask about the text very often are about the margins of the text, uh, the paratext, um, uh, and of course, the historical context. Um, I'm not uh, 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 always um, uh, trying to simply faithfully represent what someone thought in the past. I'm also asking uh, questions about um, where does that come from and what does it lead to, um, and that uh, uh, remains the case even though my uh, my uh, I have many other research interests. Um, even outside the Sanskrit world, the same questions that I ask about that world are very much the questions I ask about other worlds. Uh, one of them includes. The very study of Sanskrit in the present um, I in the same way that I'm interested in scholarly life in pre-modern India I'm interested in the histories of scholarship um, uh, in uh, the uh, 20th century and beyond specifically I'm interested in it in the United States being an American uh, but I see uh, a an interesting uh, relationship. Um, between pursuing um, histories of scholarship in the past and histories of scholarship in the present.
0: You were a PhD student not all too long ago, but yet now you are in the position of um, a faculty member, you're an your assistant professor and you advise students. So um, as someone for whom Grad school isn't all that long ago, um, but you now does have a little bit of, you know, hindsight to profit from. What would you advise students who come to you and are interested in doing research in anything Sanskrit, South Asia, um, India related? What do you think are good areas? for um, scholarship? What is interesting in itself? What may be tactically useful, given that, you know, we want to do research, but we also need to be employed so that we can feed ourselves to do our res- continue doing our research? Um, what would your point of view be on that?
1: Well, I don't have any answers to um, the uh, question of tactics. Uh, I think uh, the... Uh, uh, the situation of uh, graduate students going out and attempting to find jobs is, like my own, uh, largely a lottery. Um, I think what's more important is what kinds of things are you studying in that space and time that you have. And um, what I would encourage is there uh, there does uh, tend to be in certain parts of our field, uh, uh, a, a, a disinclination to, um, to uh, uh, how should I put this? Um, some corners of our field have a certain anti-theoretical bias. Um, uh, a lot of that is for good reason. Um, because uh, we are, uh, by and large, empiricists, we want to Uh, say uh, the things based on the evidence we have in front of us. Um, And yet, as someone who is uh, very uh, keen on certain forms of speculation, um, I uh, think that um, uh, pursuing contemporary questions, uh, questions of contemporary interest um, and contemporary ethical interest including issues of race, caste, gender, queerness, um, all of these things that have profound uh, inequalities um, uh, woven through them, uh, and that continue to have effects in the world, um, these are things that, believe it or not, can be profitably thought about through the world of pre-modern Sanskrit um, and its surrounds. That doesn't mean that Uh, all of those texts should be studied with an eye to these specific fractures. That simply means that there are surprising relationships between the pre-colonial and the post-colonial worlds that we can study the past, not only to find alternative ways of being in the past, but also possibilities for the future. And that, in many ways, is what animates the study of much post-colonial thinking. So insofar as some of those uh, post-colonial fields involve a fair bit of reflections on theory and method and historical method and so forth, I think it is um, uh, uh, very important for uh, Sanskrit studies at large to to, uh, continue uh, uh, in that vein. Some of the greatest advances in the last 20 years of our field have been really to think Uh, about the social scientific dimensions of uh, Indology. Um, One of my own teachers, Sheldon Pollock, was uh, significant in bringing uh, the uh, literary linguistic studies of Sanskrit uh, with the insights of certain forms of social science. Um, I remain a humanist at heart and uh, think that um, uh, it's the human questions uh, that should motivate us. Uh, of course, that doesn't mean that you should also not study animals. Uh, animals are just as, if not more, than human. Um, but uh, these uh, uh, kinds of um, topics that I mentioned—race, caste, gender, sexuality—these I think uh, should, uh, can, and should be at the forefront of how we think about the future of this field.
0: You've already told us about your your current book project love in the time of scholarship but uh, i've got some good news for you you have just won the sanskrit studies podcast research grant for any other project that you would like to engage in this grant is as wonderful as it is fictitious both absolutely wonderful and absolutely fictitious this grant gives you the opportunity to focus on any sanskrit related research project for several years alone or together with others, what would you use it for?
1: Wow. Uh, First of all, what an honor. (laughs) Um, Second of all, uh, I think in in my heart of hearts, I simply love literature. And there is a reason that I didn't study it formally as a graduate student, because I think I would have fallen out of love with it. And so if I had such a grant, um, uh, I would sit with my friends and read um, uh, read through some of the greatest works of Sanskrit literature. Magha's um, Shishapalavada, Bhavabhuti's Malati Madhava, and Sri Harsha's Naishadhiya Charipa. I think I would. Um, um, that's what I would want to do in a systematic fashion. Um, slowly, uh, with, with great joy, with great relish, and hopefully with great food and companionship.
0: That sounds excellent. Everybody who's answered my question, or nobody who's answered my question so far included the, um, the, the food aspect in it. But yes, absolutely, the funding should, could and should be used to keep uh, not just our minds, but also our bodies happy. So I very much like that answer.
1: <laughs> well, I, I have a small story about that. <clears throat> Going back to Dr. Mohan, she once told me a story about Sri Harsha himself, the poet. And the story goes, and I think this is a Telugu version of uh, Sri Harsha's life, and my teacher herself was of um, Telugu origin. Um, The story goes that Sri Harsha was so prolific and so unintelligible that his uncle uh, gave him some dal, some lentils to chew on, just so that it could quiet his mind a little bit. You know, you want to take a nap after you have a nice dal chapeau. So after a while, his uncle asks him, so how, how are you doing? Shihasha replies with this complex alliterative statement that's meant to resemble chewing. He says, <laughs> and Then he says, uncle, I'm noshing on mash so my mind may be mushed. And I think when my teacher told me this story, um, she was trying to say something about being precocious, but I didn't understand it that way. First of all, I found it hilarious because it sounded really funny. I was a little kid. And the other thing is that I thought what she was trying to say was that it's okay to study Sanskrit and nibble on snacks at the same time. (laughs) So this idea that learning and pleasure are indistinguishable, I think that is a lesson of Sanskrit intellectual culture.
0: That is, a, that is a beautiful interpretation, and I think it is a, a very valid interpretation. And that's often the beauty of, um, uh, uh, literary, well, of, of, of of good ideas, that they have more than one valid, positive side to them. So no matter what she was trying to, to, to show you, you um, uh, took it and arrived at a different interpretation that I think um, is, a well, I don't know whether I want to call it valid or useful, but is a very good one.
1: I think it is a core value of the humanities.
0: Yes. Um, So, you've talked a little bit about what you would um, perhaps say to um, students interested in perhaps um, doing research in uh, anything Sanskrit in the Sanskrit related field um, but what if um, you were approached by say a friend who felt that um, you know their their child should study Sanskrit or you say you were approached by um, a high school student who was interested in this thing called Sanskrit that they had maybe only heard of and didn't know very much about is there any um, good way that you find um to you know find your way into this field are there any books are there any tv programs Um, any other sort of hook to get you in
1: uh well first of all i think there are great uh translations of sanskrit books that have been produced over the last several decades um i think for um uh, i've had this conversation uh in in a taxi uh with a random stranger
0: uh-huh.
1: um you know when you have a 5 or 10 minute taxi ride and they ask you oh you study sanskrit if i were to read one book what would it
0: mm-hmm. be yeah uh,
1: i recommended that they read a translation of the little clay cart mrichakatikam i think that at any age um depending on uh your how comfortable you are uh, uh with um uh, uh, uh with uh the wide range of of literature, Um, you can introduce someone to Sanskrit uh, through the world of the little clay cart. It's a very vibrant world Um, and um, really exposes um, what is possible beyond the stylized, often stylized conventions of Sanskrit literature. Um, As far as getting into the language itself, you yourself are a, um, uh, an instructor in uh, many great uh, uh, publicly available resources for the study of Sanskrit. Um, but um, in terms of the attitude towards the language, um, I uh, very often people feel that it's something that is, uh, uh, that is Im- uh, imposing, uh, that it is looming Um, that it is unapproachable, Um, but uh, I can say from experience that I had a teacher who taught me when I was five years old, and so uh, it is certainly possible and encouraged that you can do so from a very young age, Um, wherever you find uh, the resource to do so. You don't have to wait till you come to college, Um, but even if you do do it in college, you should have a lot of fun doing it. Very often, uh, one of my great teachers, Guy Levitt, used to say, um, the first rule of Sanskrit is don't panic. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, uh, respect Guy immensely, but I would slightly amend that rule. My book, The First Rule of Sanskrit, is have fun. I agree
0: completely. And now that you've um, outlined all these um, wonderful um, avenues into Sanskrit or into um, academic study of Sanskrit, um, what do you feel could be improved about our field? What do you feel is not as it should be and could maybe be made better? Um,
1: Well, I've mentioned a little bit about um, the... uh, Uh, let's call it the intellectual imagination uh, beyond uh, the uh, purely philological. By which I mean, uh, I I was someone who, as an undergraduate, was not only a classicist, but I was also a student of Asian-American studies, of ethnic studies, of African-American studies at large. These are very American fields with very American histories. But um, uh, the more I got into uh, the field of South Asian studies, Uh, the more uh, I was distanced from that initial training as an undergrad, or at least that initial uh, um, interest. Uh, And I am very interested and invested in bringing those worlds together. Um, I think precisely because they have such different histories uh, of uh, coming to the university. Um, That is to say, they they come out of very different political moments. Um, but uh, I uh, have found a great deal of inspiration in uh, thinking together about South Asian studies and, um, uh, and, these, uh, uh, and the fields of, uh, uh, broadly speaking, ethnic studies in the United States. Um, so what I would encourage is, uh, is, that, um, uh, is, uh, is that we think a little bit more broadly. Uh, not just uh, uh not just about the region not just about uh the uh, uh, ancient or even the early modern past uh but to think with um uh in, in other words the study of um this uh uh the 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 study of the South Asian past um does not have to be uh uh does not have to be uh, limited by the the regional um, um, uh, uh, approaches uh, that uh, have uh, historically been employed. Um, So um, that's a little bit of a a broad answer. Um, I think just more concretely what I would really like to say is fuse together uh, the, the worlds of um, South Asian studies, particularly of pre-modern South Asia, uh, with the insights of, uh, of ethnic studies uh, at large. Um, there are uh, surprising and exciting convergences to be found there. Uh, that's what I would um, encourage as people go forward uh, in, uh, in this field.
0: And given that you have a position at the University of Chicago, I very much hope that um, uh, in your life as a scholar, you will be able to do exactly what you just outlined. Um, One final question from me. Um, We've been talking about Sanskrit and um, basically what you do with Sanskrit. Now, let's say the goddess of time came to you and basically gave you the opportunity to do Anything that you wanted to do, learn a new skill, learn a new language, take up a new hobby, um, go on a um, long voyage, anything that catches your fancy can be Sanskrit-related or not. What would you use this time for?
1: Wow. What a question. Um... I would like to think about this,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is always uh, to um, which is always to be recommended. I
1: would like to, um, I would like to uh, meet um, the people in um, who I have read about from many different uh, cultures in the past who are said to have been disabled um, uh, scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from my partner who works on histories of Islamic medicine in the medieval world that there were blind scholars, for instance, um, that there were people with various ailments, that there were people with other kinds of physical um, incapacities. Uh, I would like to learn about their everyday life and their scholarly life um, and spend time with them. Uh, I have personal reasons for this, um, but it's a subset of my broader interest in the everyday lives of scholars. I'm particularly interested in people who um, who see uh, that um, uh, who are able to hold uh, these together at the same time. Um, the world of uh, scholarship, at least in academia as it is now. Um, places a great deal of constraints, uh, um, a great number of constraints uh, on people who do not have, um, um, uh, uh, who do not have the same levels of uh, access, uh, uh, physical access, uh, as, um, as able-bodied people do. And so I would like to learn from uh, the legends of those people in the past. Uh, who were able to um, continue learning with them. That's what I would like to do.
0: Anand Venkat Krishnan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thank you, Antonio.